Hello and welcome again to How to Kill a Sacred Cow, Episode 3. Uh, I am Jay Hennehan, and I have with me today James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks for coming, man. Um, so this is, uh, we're going to try this again. Last time we, uh, we tried having a conversation about two weeks ago and, uh, my backup failed, but, uh, yeah, so I, I wanted to have you on James to talk about, uh, public discourse in the internet age. And, um, I've, I've been doing a lot of thinking lately about a couple of books that I read in the past. One of them was Walter Lippmann's Public Opinion. And the other one was Neil Postman's, um, Amusing Ourselves to Death and, uh, so Lippmann's book basically stated that humans have found themselves in, in, in such a state that the world has become so complex that they have to reduce everything to stereotypes in order to, uh, to, to speak with each other about them. And Lippmann's book deals with the, the degradation of discourse in the, uh, in the age of show business. Now, he was writing that back in the days of television, back in the 80s and 90s. And um, I think if he were still alive, he would have a lot to say about the Internet age. But, James, my question to you is, uh, how, how have things changed in the Internet age for public discourse? And um, how, how do you deal with it in, in your interactions with people uh, on, online? Well, just to correct you there, I think Lippmann died in 1974. So were you referring to Postman in the 80s and 90s? Did I say po Yeah, yeah. Postman yeah, died in yeah, yes, I yes. see. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, as bad as things may have seemed to people in the 80s and 90s with regards to public discourse, I can, I can attest with some degree of confidence and experience that it has de degraded even further in the internet age. And I don't just mean elocution and proper grammar and things like that uh, of that sort, although that is a factor in it. Um, but something that I keep going back to is that in the course of my research in all sorts of different topics, I do have the, uh, the pleasure of going through some archival materials like man on the street interviews from say 50 years ago. And the contrast between the average man on the street or the average even high school student, let alone college student or something, that they're getting interviews from uh, on a, in impromptu sessions. It, it, contrasting that to what you see today is phenomenal. Uh, people were able to talk in complete, complex, multi-clausal sentences that formed uh, complex ideas over the course of an argument over the course of several sentences leading together. These days, you're lucky to get more than a soundbite. And I think part of that has been because public discourse has been progressively dumped, dumbed down with each new media that's introduced from radio to television, where suddenly the, the level of discourse became, becomes framed and modeled by people who are trying to squeeze little soundbites in between uh, commercial breaks. It, it has certainly had an, its effect. The internet has even intensified that so that now people are speaking in perhaps the verbal equivalent of uh, LOL and OMG and emojis and things, things of that sort. Uh, the idea of forming complex thoughts in these types of dumbed down abstractions is becoming more and more difficult. And I think that's one, I mean, that's just the first order of this effect, but it is certainly one that I've noticed in my time, uh, even over the past decade of me doing this work. I think the level of discourse online has continued to degrade to the point where there are new forms, I would say, of language arising, if you want to call it that, or at least discourse um, with regards to memes and other things. But 
in terms of the actual ability to hold and 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 bring forth complex thoughts, I think it is becoming well more and more difficult online. Sure, and I think also that uh, I, I think you're you're definitely right on those points. And the it seems today that people are almost you're right speaking in memes, right? And um, it what it's. I think it's it's partially because the idea of the meme is so powerful, right? It's it's a it's a symbol. Symbols have always been very powerful uh, methods of communication for humans, and it it seems to be the modern version of of that. Um, but it has this also. Um, it has the the exact same effect on the negative, where it completely dumbs down the conversation because people they almost get very. Um, they become so sure of their memes and of their stereotypes, and and they they lash out really at anyone that that holds a different set of memes or stereotypes in their head and if they disagree with that person they they tend to the first the first order of 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 what they try to do is just just attack really i mean that's 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 right because ultimately this becomes about labeling and categorization so that everyone can be tied up in a bow and put into a, a specific shelf in everyone's mental bookshelf essentially oh this person is that this person is that so i can encompass their entire ideology and all their beliefs and just put it put them in this little pigeonhole that is one of the effects of the dumbing down of discourse is that it really does shut down the ability to have uh any thoughts that that lie outside of these acceptable categories the more and more of the thinking is done for a person and arrives in a ready-made package oh you are a whatever fill in the blank you are a democrat you are a conservative you you are a environmentalist you are whatever you are and that becomes your core ideology which it to a certain extent does all your thinking for you and uh and and people not only use that sort of as a weapon to to dismiss other people and their points of view but then they also internalize that and i think start to take that on because it does appeal to one of the most base instincts of humanity tribalism which uh, it's my team so i have to believe this and i have to believe that and i have to support this and that orthodoxy the uh the room for het- uh, heterodoxy becomes smaller and smaller as those categories start to take hold uh in the public and popular imagination and in discourse itself where labels do start to have there's a reification it becomes it manifests in the way that people interact with each other sure and it also runs parallel to the kind of the trend of of uh identity politics uh which really seems to be at the base of much of the political discourse at least uh between people and it it really it's kind of disconcerting i mean i i regularly have to have these discussions with people where I'm trying really to to at least make them understand that the subject isn't as simple as they're making it seem or or that maybe there's another way to look at it like I think there's a lot of utility in being able to understand that you can look at at one thing one subject one event from a multitude of different with through a multitude of different lenses um, and so right here you could use your um, your top-down lens, your your bottom-up lens, or your uh, your ground-view lens, or your conspiratorial lens, you know. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of utility in that. And there's it, it's it's really tough for to get people to understand that there's a lot of nuance to some of these subjects, and that it's not as simple as they're making it seem. One hundred percent agreed, and that's something that you 
that you understand intuitively, but it's difficult to articulate when you're actually involved in producing media around these subjects and trying to do justice to the, the depth and breadth of information that may be at your disposal that you're trying to encapsulate into a narrative, but you don't want that narrative to become so simplistic that it fails to accurately map the terrain that you're trying to show people. And that is the constant tension. And I'm certainly no, you know, no, no God on a cloud who, who is able to do that. I don't know if anyone is, but certainly I'm not perfect at it, but I do try to introduce nuance and I do find it frustrating, obviously when talking to uh, people in the, shall we say, non-reality-based community, the uh, normies in the crowd who have, have never heard of this information can't, can't even wrap their heads around it. It can certainly be frustrating. But even in the quote-unquote conspiratorial crowd or whatever, whatever one wants to deem it, 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 there are certain orthodoxies and certain ways of thinking and certain dismissals that, uh, that people make of certain issues that I think are, is too hasty. And I, I always want to try to complicate the, the matter, not not to complicate it in to bring in unnecessary complications, but just to show people that there are multiple ways of looking at any given issue. And there really you really should try at the very least, try to take account of the way other people see the world so that you can at the very least better address their concerns when you're trying to talk to them as human beings. Because one of the most common questions I have ever received in the history of my website is something along the lines of, you know, I'm trying to tell my brother about X, Y, Z, but he will not listen to me. Or I'm trying to tell, convince my parents or my best friend doesn't believe this or something like that. What can I say that will make them <laughs> believe this or something? And uh, to my mind, that's just a, I mean, that's the unanswerable question, of course, because these are individual human beings with their own perspective and their own understanding in their own experience, their own knowledge, their own intuition, you have to address them as human beings and actually listen to what they're saying rather than simply see them as just automatons that are going to take on board anything that you dump into their brain. Um, and that that really is a secret. You have to interact with human beings as human beings. Um, but unfortunately, as I say, I think the, the discourse itself is less and less modeling how to do that. And more and more, we're getting the, the clickbait online argumentation version of discourse which is just shouting louder and uh, making better quips about your your opponent rather than actually addressing what they say or who they are yeah or just uh commenting on headlines which is uh a, an episode you recently published maybe about a month ago on um i believe it was a propaganda watch episode on the yang 2020 big tech policy proposal and um i thought the way that you were looking at at that you were looking at a reddit post and um and, and looking at the thread and, and trying to figure out some of the uh, the reasons that people were, were kind of uh, putting forth their ideas about what they thought. But usually it was just like people commenting on the headlines. And uh, I, I really liked the way that you, you approached uh, looking at this. Uh, it's very, very unique and it's something that, that you're, um, you, you excel at. And uh, I was wondering what... What is it about the way that we interact with um, with media today that lends itself more to this kind of uh, just commenting on headlines? You're thinking you you understand more about a subject than than you actually do, like having an opinion on something without reading the, the source material. 
Right. Yes. Well, I, I think I don't want to posit that there was some golden age where humans were perfectly rational and we've degraded down to this point. I think it's always been there. But the media that we now have to interact with, I think, certainly exacerbates the problem. And one problem that I see is that we have become such a mediated society, so much immersed in media so that it's becoming more and more common to see people almost 24-7, or at least as much as they can manage, having earphones plug, plugged into their ears or a screen in front of their eyes, that to the point where I think it has been so completely normalized that media itself starts to become the reality for people, that they don't understand the difference between media and reality. And, of course, on a conscious level, everyone understands that. But on the subconscious level, to what extent is this constantly mediated uh, information that we're receiving influencing our perception of reality? And one thing that I would bring it back to is that I, I think probably everybody has one particular uh, niche interest or, or something that, that they directly know about or have great experience in and know a great deal about. They're knowledgeable about a certain subject. And then they go and read some sort of article in some, some mainstream newspaper or whatever it is about that subject. And immediately you can spot, well, that's a stupid simplification. And, oh, that's, that's just plain wrong. And that doesn't compute with you know, this piece of information from over here. Everyone can see the, the 18,000 holes, even in a short story about something that's not even particularly important, but just something that you have knowledge about. But when we are approaching media about something that we don't have that kind of indirect, intimate insider information about, we just by default tend to go along with whatever is being presented in that that media piece that we're that we're imbibing um and it's that disconnect between what we know is that oh these are mostly reporters for hire who do not have the direct experience of what they're reporting on and do not know about the 18,000 things they don't know about but that that fl switch isn't flipped until it's something that we understand and i think it would behoove us all to think a little bit more deeply about the fact, oh, every story is like that. And very rarely will you get a real, true, someone who has true experience and really deep, intimate knowledge of a subject writing about that thing. It's usually people who are sort of guns for hire who are writing uh, from a, a sideline. And that, I mean, that that's one of the aspects of this, is that we start to mistake Oh, the media, we, we, we just imbibe it without critically reflecting on where it's coming from. And so what I was pointing out in that propaganda watch piece was exactly as you say, uh, the, the medium of Reddit as a fora, forum for discussion is designed almost. It's almost the, the way that it functions is that what gets posted to Reddit is the headline and you have to click through the headline into the story and then read the story. And in this particular case, it was a story about a proposal that Andrew Yang had made on his blog that was linked in the story itself. So you would have to click from Reddit to the headline to the, the actual story itself and then th go through the story to find the link to the actual blog post to read what Andrew Yang actually wrote so that you have an idea what this is actually about. But unfortunately, of course, maybe one in a thousand people actually does that. Maybe one in a hundred people actually clicks on the story that it's linking to at least. And then most of the other people simply read the headline and, and react to that. And to a certain extent, that's the way Reddit is structured. There is a structural thing going on there. And I think that's a lot of internet media generally. Um, we found, I think, through this process of developing these different social media is that the most common way to uh, structure a social media site is in that, of course, I mean, every pr uh, publisher is 
shall we say, highly motivated to keep people on their platform as much as possible. So, for example, Twitter or Reddit or what have you want people to stay on their platform and only react to the headlines. And, oh, by the way, a secondary effect of that is people become less informed, but, but think that they are more informed because, hey, I read this headline. Sure. And I think there's also another um, aspect to this is that once people get used to uh, interacting with media in this way, it's not very long before they start calling to the um, to the parents, to the uh, to the to the uh, the the media platforms, to ever to the government to to regulate start regulating this thing and to um, and to to shut down those voices over there. They disagree with me, and they they need to be shut down. And and they're they're you know deleterious to society and all these different uh, just it's it's absolute madness that you would think that because you disagree with an opinion that somebody has, uh, regardless of how much evidence that they have, um, that they should be censored. And and this is actually a uh, something that I'm really, really worried about is that we're going to see more and more uh, censorship. We we already know that these platforms are shadow banning. Actually, one of one of my favorite um, kind of online guys to follow, um, he, he he just had one of his channels demonetized, and then um, his other channels um, he can't post videos. You know, he can only live stream. Um, and it's it's obviously because of what type of content he runs. He doesn't do anything that would get him thrown off of a platform. He doesn't post copyrighted material or anything like that. And so I'm, I'm just really worried that we're going to start seeing um, a government intervention um, into something that I really don't think is broken. It just it takes some personal responsibility in order to monitor um, w- the way that you interact with this stuff. And also uh, because what they're... Part of this call for regulation is is like um, in the the Andrew Yang um, blog post. It mentions that um, he wants to start he wants to start or or restart this um, this cabinet in the government that is going to oversee the health and well being of children um, that that are interacting with uh, with the internet. And I'm just uh, you know it's nothing sitting right with me. You know what I mean? Yes, and. I don't think it should be sitting right with you, any of this, because like in so many other cases, there is a genuine problem here. And I think that is what is being expressed by these people who are fumbling for something that will come and fix this. Oh, I know, government, that will fix everything. And I mean, we can blame them for being simplistic in their thinking about the solution, but not in identifying that there is a problem. And of course, the problem is not free speech itself. It's just that in the the way that things have developed, uh, it is true at this point, in order to benefit from the network effects of something like Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or these sort of monolith, megalithic platforms on the Internet, you have to be on those platforms. And I, I am one of the people who rail against the thinking that that is somehow set in stone and that we can only think in, in those terms and what have you. But I, I get it. If you are starting out a career or start, starting trying to promote some business or something, you have to be on a network that has people. I mean, it's it's great to support alternatives, but until they reach a certain point, what are you going to do? And if you get kicked off of that platform because you happen to express a political wrong think, that is a genuine problem. So what's going to be the solution? And of course, the easiest button for everyone to push is the government button. Oh, I know, government. That'll solve it. And it, it the only thing that I find staggering about this is the extent to which people are willing to <laughs> believe that their particular political football team is going to be the one holding the ball forever. 
and that whatever power that they invest in their team's quarterback to run that ball or throw it or do whatever he wants with it, oh, that exact same power is going to be given to your your mortal sworn enemies the next time that the uh, you know you you got four downs, you got to change sides. Now they have all of those powers that you just invested in the quarterback. Oh my God! Now it's the worst thing ever. Which is why every election becomes the most important election of my lifetime. I I've never seen anything like this. And if the other side wins, it's death, death for us all. Uh, I mean, it, it once one sees the logic of this, uh, the way that it, the the system plays. But when you step back from the system itself and go, this is insanity. <laughs> I mean, the real solution, as I've talked about before, the real solution does come in taking personal agency to invest in and manifest the change that we want to see rather than waiting for someone to come down from on high to hand us what we want because that is literally how infants deal with the world that is not how fully grown rational adult men and women deal with the world but we have been infantilized by being nestled in the coddling swaddling clothes of the state for for our entire lifetimes by this point the the idea of the nanny state is so prevalent that it's difficult for people to see any way out of this other than through government where really truly facebook's power twitter's power google and youtube's power the power of these platforms to control public discourse is a power that we have given them and continue to give give them with our presence and until we really start to account for that and think about that, I don't think there's any genuine solution that's going to come out of this. But the problem itself is a real problem. If you get deplatformed from these major platforms in today's society, the way it exists right now, that is a problem. And it, it does present, in some cases, career-threatening um, uh, jeopardy for various people. So how do we deal with this? That's really the question. Well, I think uh, you do it by breaking up Google, right? It it worked so well for Standard Oil, uh, you know. Or uh, oh, you know what? We need a we need an Internet Bill of Rights. That that's what we need. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, it sounds beautiful, doesn't it? But actually, that goes back to something that we that came up when we were talking earlier about the degradation of public discourse. And one thing that I was reflecting on is as we were talking is. Uh, think about the American Revolution and uh, what was happening during that time and that a, a pamphlet like Common Sense could really rally an entire nation of people. Uh, it's difficult to even wrap our minds around how popular Common Sense was at that time and how much it did motivate people to actually join in the revolutionary independence movement. And now fast forward that today to, to today. Obviously, a political pamphlet, a tract like that would never capture the public imagination. It would be at best maybe a viral YouTube video or a Facebook post <laughs> or something. But really, I mean, how much information can you possibly really convey in a YouTube video or a Facebook post that's going to go viral and capture people's imagination? I mean, it has to be under under 10 minutes, certainly probably under five minutes in order to maintain people's interest uh, versus you know, a book like Common Sense, go read that or reread it and look at what people were thinking about and talking about or read the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers and the kinds of discourse that was going on at that time, high level discourse amongst really intellectually capable and learned people who had spent their lives looking at uh, ancient Rome and how it fell, how the Roman Republic became an empire and how it fell and why and what can we learn from this and and reading John Locke and things like this and there were some very high level philosophical ideas being exchanged at that time 
I don't think I have to go too far out on a limb to say that that level of discourse is not prevalent in today's political environment. It's much to our detriment. So that when you talk about an Internet Bill of Rights or something, I mean, even if we could trust the some sort of political process to bring that about, which obviously, for people who don't know, I do not trust that. But even if we did, I mean, what level of thinking is going to go into that today, that type of a document versus what was happening you know, 200 years ago. Yeah, and I think uh, it's, in uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, he he made a similar point to what you just made, um, and I think it was, there were these debates between, I think it was Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, or I could be wrong about Douglass, but um, these debates, they lasted for eight hours, you know, and you'd have to stop for a lunch break, and they, it, it held these audiences captive. And it, it, you're, you're 100% right. There's no way that you would be able to hold people's attention these days for that long. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I, I, I really, it's, it's tough to, to really try to, to, to connect with people these days. It's, it's tough to, I mean, unless they're already on your team. That's, that's easy enough. All you have to say is, you know, oh, 9-11? Yeah, yeah, 9 Oh, yeah, we're both good. We, okay, we're good. You know, we both, yeah, we both believe the same story. Um, but in it to to actually have a discussion these days with someone that that doesn't believe what you what you already believe, it's it, it's just becoming more and more difficult that people have more in common than with with each other than they do with the people that are in authority or the people that are um, the the uh, influential the 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 influencers or or the people that are uh, in the media or anything like that and. It's just it's it's tough to really like I, I said in our previous conversation was that there I'm, I'm having to have political conversations with people on a level that I, I didn't have to only just a, a few years ago uh, because they're 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 so vehemently anti-Trump. And I, I don't blame them. It's just I don't feel that same type of vitriol towards the man because he's a politician. I think they're all, you know, pieces of human garbage. And uh, I don't think that they're worthy of, of uh, I'm not going to yell at somebody else because I think that their politician is, is wrong and mine is right. Because, I mean, I don't have a politician, but, you know, it's, uh, it's it, I'm having to, to, to really have conversations I really don't want to have, you know, with people that I, it's just not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And there are, I think there are several reasons for that. One of which ties into the mediated world that we're living in, which is that the breakdown of the mass media publication model of the 20th century, be that newspaper, radio, television, uh, the breakdown of that model and the fact that we don't have that shared Monday morning water cooler talk. Did you see the latest episode of such and such? We don't really have those key cultural touchstones means that the one thing that everybody does have in common is politics and everyone can talk about the latest on the impeachment hearings or whatever it is, because that is the shared reality at this point. Um, now that reality television has given way to to basically political drama, political reality television, uh, that's that's what's taken over that that touchstone place in the public imagination. Um, uh, there are other aspects to why this is the case. I think uh, another aspect of it is that with the creation of the nanny state, you basically guarantee that the 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 control, the fight for the control of the that in any state, who gets to control who gets what and how it's divvied up, the larger that trough of power grows, the, the more intense the fight over it becomes to the point where we have arrived at now, where 
people literally do think it is a matter of life and death. And if the wrong person gets in into office, it'll be the end of everything and we'll all die. Um, that that mentality has made it to the point where you cannot escape politics. Now, everything is political, um, which I, to our detriment. I mean, I think if you uh, I don't know if this is a, a good metric, but perhaps one measure of utopia is the extent to which you don't have to devote yourself to the political to the extent that you could actually just go and do what you want to do and enjoy your life without having to worry about politics. Maybe that would be utopia. Well, then we are uh, fast uh, getting further and further away from that, getting closer towards dystopia where everything, every moment of your life is political and a political act and all friendships and all, all, uh, all enemies are created on the basis of political lines. That's really a very, very interesting insight that I'd, I'd really never thought of. And, you know, it, it, it's crazy that people, they, they've relied on these models for so long, this mass media model that, that goes back to, uh, you know, the, the late 1800s when they really started churning out those, I mean, there were newspapers before, but the, the mass media model really came to, to fruition in the, the, when the nation state kind of reached its full uh, potential and the, when the, uh, the education system came into play uh, it, um, on, a, on a large scale, especially in, in these nation states and, and it's there's a, there's a lot about the modern world that has its roots in the 20th century the same way i think what we're experiencing now is is a, a lot of people want things to go back to a certain way almost like they were they wanted in the in the 20s after world war 1 they really wanted a world to go back but that that world is dead and gone but we're still working on the same models Yes, we are. And in fact, it's interesting that you would bring it back to that post-World War One era, because I think World War One, as people who watched my World War I, World War One conspiracy documentary might know, CorbettReport.com slash WWI, uh, I really do think that was a fracture point in history and that there was a before and after and that that is a meaningful moment that took place. And one of the fracture points that I pointed to, especially in part three of that documentary, was the creation of the mentality of the state controlling the economy and controlling and directing people's actions. Uh, certainly in the American context, that was almost politically unthinkable pre-World War One, at least not to the extent that people thought of it after World War One. The idea of mobilizing the war economy and of course, that was enabled by the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, and it was largely that money-printing power which really fueled the rise of the 20th century and the all-encompassing uh, all wars that took place within it. I think there is a direct connection there. Um, so, yes, I think certainly that, that, that war mentality of the government controls everything is something that you can't escape once it's been set in place. The, the Leviathan only grows and grows and grows in power. It never relinquishes any of its power until it becomes all-encompassing and until you can't really escape its grasp. Sure, and this is actually a good reason as to why you should never give the government the power to create an Internet Bill of Rights or uh, to, to break up Google and Facebook and all these things because they're, they're not going to put that genie back in the bottle and then you'll just have the... the it's the same thing like they sold the the income tax because it was it was originally a one percent tax on people and it was supposed to be for the rich people yet the rich people figured out how to how to skirt tax law because they're smart <laughs> right well um, as as a canadian i can inform you yes the canadian income tax was brought in in world war one as a temporary wartime measure and somehow it's still around today how i don't understand how it, does that work it's funny how that happens you know <laughs> 
But uh, James, I'm going to let you go, buddy. Uh, I, I just want to thank you so very much for coming back on the show, especially uh, the, the quick turnaround just a couple of weeks ago. We had that uh, the, the failed interview. But James, thank you very much. I appreciate the, you having me on and uh, thank you for the conversation. I think it's an important one. I hope more people at least start thinking along these lines. And I want everybody to go right now to www.corbareport.com. Give this man some love. And, uh, yeah, you won't be disappointed. James, you have a good night. You too. Thank you. Thank you.